We started in hard times to bring us all in into the laughter. Welcome to the season finale of Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I'm the manager of Klatskanite Beauty's power department, the creative director for Public Power Underground, and today's host, Paul Dockery. And I'm Dan Catchpole, contributing editor of Clearing Up, co-host of News Data's Energy West podcast, and this week's co-host. And I'm Abigail Sawyer, associate editor of California Energy Markets, reporting on the Southwest region and California for News Data. I'm Jason Fordney, the editor of California Energy Markets, and this week's podcast ambassador from News Data. All we right. did it, team. We made it to the season finale. Yeah. I'm ready for it emotionally. I'm ready for it to, to like have a break. Are you all ready for a break? It's been a busy summer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just excited to be here with all of you, be it the first episode of the season or the finale. I'm just Aww. excited. Um, to get going on today's season finale, we opened up the phone lines, FaceTimes, text messages, Twitter replies, and email inboxes for a special mailbag episode. We've question, we have questions from Northwest Public Power icons, hashtag energy, Twitter personalities, and serious professionals, and some listeners about all kinds of topics. We also have an intermission game inspired by Bluey. Uh, with a bunch of energy industry professionals who are going to try to do some compare and contrast between Bluey characters and energy industry actors. Very excited about it. But before we get started, Dan, can you read a word from our presenting sponsor? I would be happy to. The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company owned by public power entities like us. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. TEA does this by providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, renewable solutions, and a whole lot more. More than 60 public power utilities have partnered with TEA to tackle their energy future. So if you're looking for an energy authority to partner with in navigating the uncertain future of our industry, visit TEA inc.org to learn more. That's teainc.org. The Energy Authority, they're as underground as it gets. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so we're going to go into our, our main segment. It's a mailbag. So we offered three ways to submit mailbag questions. First, we offered in writing like a regular old letter. Second, by sending a video clip or audio clip with a question. And third, FaceTiming with us because we can, because it's freaking awesome. Without further preamble, let's get into it. Abigail, can you read the first submission? Duncan Campbell of Campbell Scale Microgrids and the DER Task Force submitted a distributed energy re resource question for us. Duncan asks, quote, a bunch of great modeling exercises have recently shown in introducing DERs in the right way helps lower system costs. A big part of that is reducing T&D system growth to some degree. To me, it feels like actually doing this is more possible with public power than IOUs. Thoughts? Well, I'd like to say in California, uh, it does happen with IOUs, usually at the direction of the PUC, Public Utilities Commission, and often driven by legislation. But California is a little bit further out front on the DER microgrid space, I guess. So that's my first thought. Um, I'm sure so, Paul, Paul has some thoughts on public power. 
Yeah, I think one of the reasons he like, proposes this uh, this possibility that public power may be better do, able to do it than IOUs is because part of the process is like reducing your TND investment. And of course, investor-owned utilities get uh, regulated rate of returns on those capital improvements for the TND system that, uh, that may provide some, maybe the an incentive to not do distributed energy resources. Um, I, I actually think as, as public entities, this poses a really good value proposition for our customers. The distributed energy resources, similarly like demand response um, and energy efficiency, what's something we, we do a lot here in the Pacific Northwest, are all part of this bundle of uh, customer value. Uh, so in a lot of ways, I kind of, I want to agree with the theme of his, uh, his message in, in question, because I do think public power can capture some of this value for its customers um, in, in ways that investor-owned utilities may not be structurally incentivized to. Um, but I think all of us, regardless of investor-owned or public power, are grappling with you know how to adequately capture those system value propositions and make sure they're modeled adequately um, and try to try to do best by our customers regardless of business structure. I don't know. So the, the Pacific Northwest, um, like solar behind the meter hasn't taken off the way it has in California. Um, and I assume some somewhat in the Southwest, Abigail, what is the, what's the state of the Southwest and like rooftop solar and that type of distributed energy resource? Uh, Cause you got, you got way more sun down there than we do up here in the Pacific Northwest. Way more sun and not enough panels. That's, that's pretty oh. much the story. I mean, and, you know, uh, California tends to set the trends, start them, get them started off. And uh, it also, there's more money in California. There's been huge incentives for net metering with, with net metering, which of course is a big controversy these days is the changes to the net metering policy uh, before the CPUC. So that's interesting. Um, and in Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, these are places that have really been trying to figure out exactly what their policy should be. Nevada's uh, been up and down about it. And um, they, they, have, they have an interesting policy there where there's, there's a cap on how much distributed energy they're, they're hmm. going to allow in that regard in terms of rooftop solar for the most part. Um, a question on that, Abby. It, 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 sorry? Yeah, I got a quick question, a follow-up yeah, yeah, on yeah. that. Is that cap applied just to the investor owns or does that also apply no, to that, that cap, if there's a there's a well and in New Mexico too. Well, in New Mexico it's more with community solar. Um, and those are new rules. But um you know, it's not that the cap can't be expanded at some point, can't be, you know, can't increase. But what they do is they allow a certain amount of of return on that investment. You know, you you can oh, okay. get, you can get X percentage return on um what you feed back to the grid if you're in this tier and then when that tier fills up and this is nevada again uh, then you can get a lower percentage return to you etc and in new mexico there's a cap like i think it's a 200 megawatt in aggregate for community solar that um, <laughs> is just going in um, but as reliability issues are, are facing end users and just the, the various challenges that we're facing as heat goes up. Um, you know, I think we're seeing a lot more interest in distributed resources and putting panels and putting batteries outside your home or, you know, plugging in your car to be a battery if that comes up, you know, there's all sorts of things out there. Um, but so far, 
you know, you're not seeing as much in the Southwest as you have seen in California, but I think as with so many things, it's going to change quickly. Yeah, I, I, go ahead, Dan. Oh, well, I think that's a uh, great point. I totally agree with that one that uh, this, at least among IOUs, well, and just in general, this has not been a major source or major area of investment. There's a lot of conversation about it, but it's, mm -hmm. it seems fairly marginal. Like it's not as uh, intrinsic a part of their overall strategy, but I think that's going to change as transmission becomes more constrained with uh, bringing on huge amounts of renewables and trying to just get the most out of the transmission distribution systems. Paul, I thought you had a great point about the structural incentives uh, between public power and IOUs. And I mean, Duncan had a great question here uh, that absolutely public power just does not have the regulatory, um, I don't want to, I was going to say oversight, but that makes it sound like, oh, they're just doing whatever. But uh, they, the regulatory barriers or they, you know, that the same structures that they can, they're in a position where they can make these more prospective investments uh, or forward-looking investments that an IOU, I think, since we don't see that major uh, transmission constraint yet, it's more oh, this is going to come. But I think they have a hard time justifying it in terms of uh, prudent expense with regulators. And so public power definitely is in a better position here. But yeah, we don't see it a lot in the Northwest, especially, yeah, California's ahead of lots of places um, or ahead of everybody in a lot of areas, including this. Uh, interestingly, I just covered a story about Idaho Power. They had a net metering study where uh, that they didn't make any official recommendations, but the gist of the study um, pointed to, they, they've they asked in the past and they're, it seems like they're setting themselves up to make the argument again, to slash the retail or slash the rate that they pay uh, folks who have rooftop solar for their excess that gets uh, excess energy being exported onto the system. So Duncan's asking about, uh, hey, let's bring on more DER, but there's certainly a lot of IOUs that do not have the financial incentive to uh, you know, make uh, DER's rooftop solar less financially attractive to customers. And you know we're seeing that in, in various states. I've seen it in Montana with Northwestern Energy, Idaho Power, um, yeah, they're raising various concerns, but uh, definitely does come down to trying to decrease the financial incentive for customers. Yeah, and some of that, you know, I, I spoke to like the structural incentives and the different business models. Some of it's also like concern about making sure you aren't cross subsidizing customers and doing some sort of inequitable transfer yeah. between customers that have the capital to go buy some solar panels uh no, they, get the tax I, incentives and and that's also and that's true for both public power and ious right yeah, so I, sure... I didn't mean to make it sound like there aren't legitimate concerns yeah. that they're raising so i appreciate you pointing that out yeah uh but but from a public power perspective like we do have to balance those equitable issues and that's why i think some of the winners for projects for public power are things like uh, schools and community uh solar programs things like that where there's not only um, like this value added proposition of reducing transmission and distribution system costs, but there's also like community benefits for resiliency, like a microgrid around with that incorporates schools and 
um, like essential services like fire stations and police, those types of uh, facilities can be really beneficial for public power. And I think there are some entities in the Northwest specifically who are doing projects like that because you get that that value added proposition for the community, not just in defer defray costs, but also a, a community value and community benefit. Eweb's got a great project, a microgrid project for that's right at a school. I want to sneak in one last thing here. I'll make it quick, but Paul, one thing you uh, you remind me of it, this also with in terms of that subsidization and inequities in terms of who can invest in this. Uh, I think it also makes a case for or highlights some of the shortcomings in terms of uh, using volumetric rates to bear or pay off, uh, pay fixed costs. That's, I mean, part of the issue that Idaho Power raises, which yeah. there's increasing conversation and it seems uh, you know, another argument in favor of, for advocates who are saying we need to increase fixed cost charges and decrease volumetric, relying on volumetric. Mm -hmm. Great place to close it out. Are we ready for the next one? That was amazing, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was awesome. Yes, it was awesome. Professor Baker, an assistant professor in the Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering Department at the University of Colorado Boulder, who leads the I got I to gotta say what it means, and then I'll use the acronym at the end, okay? The Grid Interactive Frameworks for Intelligent Infrastructure Lab, or Griffin Lab for short. Also did a FaceTime mailbag submission. Are you ready for it? Cue the clip. Hi, Professor Baker. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. I am excited to have you. Over the 4th of July, you had this awesome thread on Twitter about this concept of electric utilities using, and you can hear my dog in the background, very excited to have me talking this morning, uh, electric utilities using airlines customer bidding model uh, for demand response. I thought it was awesome. I was so happy you were willing to come on and describe this concept and maybe do a mailbag submission. So can you dig a little bit into it and explain what the, this is for people not on energy Twitter? Totally. And if you're not on energy Twitter, good for you. I don't know if I would <laughs> recommend spending as much time on it. But yeah, so a lot of airlines have these programs where if they overbook flights, they'll ask consumers to bid in a cost that, you know, maybe they're willing to receive to bump their flight to a later time. Very so for me, you know, exactly. I, I actually love those texts. Sometimes I did something like $3,000. And I used to think that was crazy. But a few weeks ago, Delta actually was giving customers $10,000 to bump their flights. Wow. So pretty nuts. So my idea was, why don't we extend this to residential demand response? So the way that demand response works right now is basically you either enroll in these programs ahead of time and the utility has control over your AC compressor or your thermostat, and you get paid this flat fee. So regardless of if it's a really bad time for you or a really good time for you. Um, that's Conversely, there's also the uh, what I call the thoughts and prayers model, where the utility sends you texts or emails slightly asking you to conserve energy. Absolutely. So neither of these is really ideal. So why don't we actually ask customers how much they want to receive to adjust their load? If I'm out with my friends at a brewery, and I'm like, sure, adjust my thermostat set points by two degrees and I'll get six bucks. 
um, that's a pretty good deal for me versus if I have people over and I don't want to make them uncomfortable. I'm like, no dice, $3,000. So I'd love to hear the podcast team's thoughts about this kind of customer bidding model um, and how it could have some pros and possibly some cons. I, I love it. Great framing. Great mailbag question. We got you to, to do the mailbag. I really appreciate it. I, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, and I will, would love to hear more thoughts from you maybe in season five, is the need to increase the depth on the demand side of the demand balance constraint so that we can have in a deeply decarbonized grid some, uh, some price setting based on the demand side. So this customer bidding model fits well into that. Maybe we can talk about it. Are you willing to come back? Absolutely. I love talking about this stuff and uh, spreading the good word about demand response. So uh, I, I'd love to do that. And I, I noticed on your bio, you also do work on like water energy nexus. And I think there's a lot of Northwest utilities, public power utilities who would love your expertise on this, which is a really interesting dynamic. And you, you're an expert on it. So uh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, expert loosely speaking. I started that work a few years ago, but it's super interesting, super important. So I'd love to talk about that. Great. Well, thank you very much. Please, uh, we're going to get back to the crew and talk about the demand response customer bidding model. Thank you so much, Professor Baker. Thanks, Paul. Looking forward to it. Yep. Bye. Alyssa, I really appreciate it, Professor Baker, for coming on and talking to all of us. Uh, big fan of her on Energy Twitter. And I like this prompt specifically because it's a crossover between like airlines and energy Twitter, which is just exactly the sweet spot for Dan, who freelance reports on some like air airline industry, right? You do journalism on both energy and airlines. Did I got that right? Yeah, 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 yes. So yeah, I'm but, really excited for your take, Dan. What's your take on this one? Uh, so yeah, I really appreciate this question and I think it's a great concept. Just to give a little bit of the background, so airlines used to be heavily regulated uh, in terms of who could fly which routes and how much they could charge, and they had this issue where issue where um, you know up until the '70s, if they ran out of space, you just got bumped and sorry. So uh, this economist uh, Julian Simon came along and finally convinced, after several years, convinced uh, the FAA uh, to allow this airlines to engage in this system where they pay people to volunteer to be bumped. Uh, and it really was a game changer in terms of, well, one customer relations, but handling this issue. Uh, and I think it's a great concept. I think there are ways that we can apply it. Um, the industry can apply it. I think there are some challenges. I mean, one thing with uh, getting uh, volunteering, getting paid to uh, get uh, bumped from a flight. Ooh, that took me a little bit to get out. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a one-time, very specific, uh, you know, um, interaction transaction where you've got a very specific cost that is, you know, it might be two tickets to anywhere in the 48 states. So it's a, you know, substantial, uh, financial benefit immediately with a substantial inconvenience or what have you. Um, Whereas, so it depends on how this is applied. I, you know, I think if you're looking to apply this, the DR uh, incentives here, you know, if it's, I think it, you've got to structure it so that customers don't have to think about it like day to day, but they can just say, hey, if, you know, the energy cost reaches this threshold, threshold, I 
um, you know, I'll, I'll volunteer to uh, you know, have you guys use demand response to adjust my load. That does get into the complication of, you know, you don't know when that's going to happen and it might be a super inconvenient time for you. So, I mean, there's some challenges here, but I think it's a really interesting idea and one that uh, the industry should certainly consider and pursue, you know, as load shifting becomes increasingly important in, in terms of the system, how we manage the system. So, yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Baker, for uh, raising this question. Yeah, I have a counterpoint to that, which oh, all right <laughs> is that counterpoint. Uh, yeah, uh, you know what utilities tell me when I ask about you know what can you do because I I, I cover some utilities that are really looking at some due to fossil retirements and things like that, uh, looking at some and and uh, supply chain issues for their replacement resources after those fossil retirements. Um, they're looking at some serious reliability, resource adequacy constraints. And I say, well, how about demand response? Can't you just do something? And you know, the big money, if you will, or the big impact in relieving the strain is not in residential. It's not in your little one-off, you know, turning off your dishwasher, not running it in the afternoon or whatever it is. I mean, all that in aggregate can certainly help a lot, but it's in, it's in uh, calling up the steel plant and saying, hey, can you back off for a while? And, you know, the chemical plants, the whatever, it's, it's in your ind industrial commercial customers, or it's even in your, maybe, you know, you could, you could call up your big box stores and say, can you cut the lights to half for a while or something like that? You know, these big energy hogs, that's where you can really get an impact. So I don't know that it's going to be worth the hassle of the piecemeal um, approach. Although, you know, yeah. it's a nice idea and customers should be compensated in some way. The other thing uh, to think about, though, is, you know, a, a less intensive, administratively intensive approach is just, you know, allowing or providing for time of use rates, which customers opt into, and therefore they're getting some benefit for conserving energy during those times of high demand. And so, you know, that that's something that's just probably a little easier to manage and that customers typically opt into, um, or at least have the opportunity to opt out of, uh, if that's not the plan that works for them. So, you know, it's again, an evolving field. <laughs> Uh, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the, it's a easier trade-off uh, for those big demand users. And it, they can, it can mirror that more like simple one-to-one -one tra or specific transaction for uh, businesses. And they can, you know, it's easier for them to calculate, well, this is a business, there's a financial benefit, you know, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to restrict my commercial or my economic output, but you pay me. Um, yeah, I just want to tag in one or add one quick thing that um, you made me think of here, uh, and I'll stop hogging the answer to this, or the yeah, discussion. This is your this. question, man. This is your crossover of well, worlds right here. I think one really uh, important aspect of this is is not financial, but you know, I mean, the alt the the alternative one area that California also leads in is you know rolling brownouts, right? And so you know if it's if you don't find solutions, the solution becomes uh, you know, shedding load, which never goes over well. And just as you know, this solution really improved for the airline industry, really improved the customer experience uh, and just removed a 
major inconvenience and and uh, you know something that just you know sucked uh, for airline passengers. This uh, finding solutions like this where there's uh, mutual benefits can really improve the customer experience, for lack of a better term. You know, uh, if if whatever you can do to do decrease those brownouts, uh, this certainly needs to be on the table for consideration. Abigail makes a good point. <clears throat> you know, if you can aggregate this DR somehow, there, there are programs in California already or companies working in that space where uh, residential users can get paid to reduce demand, but it's fairly, you know, new idea, but it, it is happening in California. Those are third party companies. Yeah. Here, yes. You know? Yeah. So, so they're, I guess they're partnering up with utilities somehow to, to make that deal and they're handling the headache, the administrative headache, I, I gather. Um, yeah. It's considered a virtual power plant, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I've seen numbers of up to 550 megawatts aggregated here. So it's pretty significant. Among all of them. Yes. Hundreds of thousands of homes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. One of the reasons I really enjoy enjoyed this question and think it's important for utilities to think a lot about is, is one of the things I gathered from my interviews with like Professor Mays and uh, Jesse Jenkins and Professor Wolak was around the need to develop the demand side of market participation in a deeply decarbonized electric sector where you have marginal costs not like rarely set by these natural gas units um, and you have variable resources um, that are causing more scarcity conditions or can cause more scarcity conditions as they're more volatile um, and having some depth of market on the demand side to help market price setting is going to be really it could be one of the ways that our current market paradigm could work well in those futures um, so i think some like to start thinking about the corollaries to other industries where uh, we have these type of price settings on the demand side where you can be like, yeah, uh, in order for you to displace me for this airline, you need to pay me $200 or maybe I'll bid $500 because I really want to get there. I think that's a really useful framework and we need to start thinking about ways to actually um, incorporate this into being more uh, operationalize it. And Dan, to your point, it also needs to be easier than like, uh, I need to do it more automated for my home because each yeah. decision is only worth like a buck. Whereas at the airline, I'm at, you know, I'm, I'm pushing, I'm, I have a flight and I'm getting prompted and I'm like, oh, it's a one-time $500 decision point. It's, those are rare events. This is yeah. a recurring kind of system update. Yeah. You can okay. just be like, hey, I'll take the money. I'm going to go hang out at a Wolfgang Puck's chain <laughs> restaurant or whatever. Yeah. All right. Our next question is from Travis Gavula of NRG Energy. He's also former commissioner with the Montana Public Service Commission. I'm used to asking Travis questions, not the other way around, but uh, he set it up with contacts and everything. Here you go. I have a great one based on something I heard lately at an industry conference. NYSERDA, which is a state procurement board, is considering indexing rec contract prices to inflation. In other words, the risk of inflation would sink to customers, not developers. This is on the heels of a contract for differences format 
that already has the REC adjust up or down against wholesale energy capacity revenues. Again, removing risk from project developers. To me, it seems like cost of service regulation all over again. He continues the question, since we're doing competitive, quote, competitive contracts that absolve developers of all or most risk in the name of, quote, low cost projects, why not just do public power or alternatively, how can we push some risk back onto developers and private capital, not ratepayers? End quote. It's Travis always looking for this type of cost shifting and uh, is very attuned to this uh, this branch of economics, I guess. So, um, Abigail, you have any thoughts on that? Well, I <laughs> I think you know burying customers in inflation related, uh, <laughs> you know, in uh, having this impact tied to inflation is probably not a great idea uh, these days. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I I'm always thinking about ways that the developers who you know are able to you. Know, who are able to pretty much assure themselves of a return um, can take a little bit more of a risk um, because they they've got a captive market. So I'm I'm definitely on board. It's a, it's a lot to think about and chew on, um, but uh, I, I'm sure. there for it. <laughs> I uh, I like this uh, the framing of this question. It's like why not a public option? You know, well, public option can be okay. Uh, it also reminded me of the, uh, in the interview with Professor Wolak, he talked about the really, one of the values of these fixed price long-term power contracts is that it aligns the supplier with the retailer, right? So my interests are aligned when it's a fixed price contract um, with, the, with the generator, because we both want my energy to get served at the lowest cost. Um, and this is one of those other mechanisms where it, these our interests are no longer aligned, right? Where um, I'm taking on risk uh, and, and they're alleviated from risk. And one of his, uh, what I would say, messages was like, we don't, we don't need to be protecting the generators and the independent power producers. They're really good at protecting themselves. We need to be thinking of ways as, you know, industry professionals, as regulators, um, of how to advocate for the customers. Um, and I love this concept of why not a public option for developing these type of resources to enhance you know, the, the competitiveness of the market. Not to say that the public power option would always be the least cost. It's all dependent on project specifics and, and av availability of ways to monetize things like uh, tax credits and, and things like that. But you know, it's at least an option and it, 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 it enhances some competitiveness. I don't know. Just saying. Yeah. I, I, that's a great point about uh, aligning risks. And that's a great way to think about it, which, I mean, this, the idea of um, shifting this risk, the finance, some of the financial risk here to customers just seems to be like opening up such, uh, creating an opening for really just some bad financial decisions by on the, the developer side. Uh, where yeah, you're getting those interests uh, out of alignment and with the huge amount of build out of renewables that we need, uh, there's obviously developers are going to be super busy. And <clears throat> if interests aren't aligned, we're just setting ourselves up for some financial risk here that's going to fall un unfairly to customers, consumers. Uh, so I think that's a great way to think about it. Unless, of course, you know, 
thinking back to our earlier question, um, these developers just try to help customers employ DERs. <laughs> and, I'll give it a seven out of 10. I actually ran into Travis right after uh, we did our earlier recording. So he does know about, uh, know that we're, we're talking about it and um, I'll ask him about it. I don't really have anything to add other than what we already said, but um, yeah, as I said, he's always paying attention to this type of risk shifting that can you know, often happen without the customers knowing it, so. Yeah. Really appreciate the perspective. And anytime you ask two questions means you ask no questions because I can answer, say whatever I want. Right. And they may not be related to one of the two, right? That's a journalism one-on-one. <laughs> and yeah, that is definitely true. Uh, I just say for listeners, if you ever have a chance to talk to Travis, take advantage of it. So I uh, got to know him when he was on the Montana uh, commission and super smart guy, like scary smart guy. Um, you it feels like sometimes when you're talking to him like drinking from a fire hose the proverbial fire hose but this is this focus on risk and risk shifting has long been a, a something that he's been really honed in on uh that i mean to the industry's benefit and i have to say he was a really fair he really brought a fair approach to that on the montana commission much to the chagrin um of both sides of the developers, the utilities, um, not so much the customers. I mean, he was always, cause they usually were the people who folks were trying to shift cost onto. I think he was in his twenties when he joined the commission, right? Yeah, he, he came really back young. after school, after college and like helped to, well, anyway. Impressive. Leader or listeners don't need to know his whole backstory, but yeah, yeah. he got started really young, super smart. If you ever run into him, and have a chance to talk to them, take advantage of them. So this is the this is what you get. You submit a question to Public Power Underground. Oh, you just get a bunch of compliments about how great you are. <laughs> so yeah, submit more questions, uh, more people. It's great. That's a, what a being an electric utility enthusiast like us means. We just give each other compliments and we try to insulate ourselves from any criticism. I mean, that's the nature of enthusiasm, right? All right I think we're ready for the next one. That was a great way to end it. So Dan, can you read the next one? Also, can instead of the FaceTime thing, can we consider using the um, the Kool Aid guy? Oh yeah, <laughs> just leave that in. Leave that in. Yes, and we'll just use exact. We'll sample. What we're gonna do is we're gonna sample Dan saying that because we can't steal other samples. We have to make up our own content. So say it one more time, real clear, Dan. Real clear. Real clear. Oh yeah. Damn. Take it away, Dan. Mary Winky, uh, the executive director of the public generating pool and a bonus interview this season asks, with the development of the Western Resource Adequacy Program, the West has made significant strides toward a future that will ensure adequate supply during peak periods. And I'm very excited to watch as the program continues on the pathway of implementation. However, in thinking about the pathway to meeting state clean energy standards and a fully decarbonized grid, the Western Resource Adequacy Program, or RAP, does not address key questions about the types of technology that will be needed through sustained periods of energy needs. How does the underground think about this and about new technology development? Are new technologies needed to fully decarbonize? How should we electrify electricity wonks think about this potential, potentially significant challenge? Even though RAP is not fully implemented yet, should we already be thinking about what is next? Jason, what do you 
What do you think? Yeah, I have a, a couple of thoughts. You know, um, I think of energy storage, first of all. Here in California, we ended up sort of doing a Hail Mary with uh, the couple gigawatts of storage that we're pretty much throwing on the grid as fast as we can. Uh, but putting all the eggs in one basket's already caused problems. There's lithium sourcing issues. Uh, the price of lithium is fluctuating. There's disposal, disposal issues, and there's the explosion issue. So just in the area of storage, yeah, we need lots of research into new technologies and uh, generation technologies too. You know, uh, what uh, the, all of the above comes to mind, uh, hydrogen, uh, renewables, but you know, I, I don't think renewables and storage alone, sun, wind, and batteries can can power America. So, yeah, uh, small modular nuclear. So there's a lot of research happening. We write about it a lot, and absolutely, we need to bring as much forward as we can. I, uh, I think about this issue a lot in terms of uh, the Western Resource Adequacy Program with, with like, I like uh, Mary, think it's an incredibly important program that we're excited to get implemented in the West, but it's not the only component to a, a well-functioning organized market, like the real-time markets, like the energy imbalance market, day ahead markets, and the integration that comes from a, like a thinking through all of the components of power planning and how they functionalize in a market is really important. Like, like she mentions, like this program doesn't consider the energy components of resource adequacy. And we need to keep working on that stuff. And to underscore her point, I think her point or what I would say in response to how I think about it is that we need to be thinking about those next steps and those next technologies to, um, to figure out how to effectively decarbonize our system. Um, because Power planning is a multi-year process and you have to be thinking about things like, to your point, Jason, small modular reactors or um, the long duration storage, um, you know, using hydro to integrate renewables and have the, the capability, energy storage capabilities of hydro. All those are really important as we think about uh, resource or, or grid decarbonization. And you know, this is a good next step. We're making progress and we need to definitely be thinking about the next steps uh, because the future is coming and it's coming uh, fast and it's hot this week. Yeah. yeah. Indeed, yeah, I, I think, you know, to her last question, um, you should always be thinking about what is next, I think, or what might be next and just trying to be prepared. It's, it's tough, but, you know, to that point, like, I think we should also really look for the low hanging fruit wherever we can. And uh, it doesn't always, we don't always need a high tech solution. There are low tech, um, Maybe they're not full solutions, but they are components of a solution. I think you have to throw everything out at, at, the, at the problem sometimes because uh, chipping away at it, it has an effect, <laughs> even if you can't immediately, there, there may not be a silver bullet. Um, but you know, things like energy efficiency, uh, that's, that's really out there. Um, you know, closing your shades when the sun comes in or um, turning off the lights or opening your shades and turning off the lights instead, or, you know, things like that. And, and that sort of thing happening en masse and, you know, um, fixing drafty windows and, you know, putting weather stripping around, especially in institutional buildings. And, you know, I, it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I like to walk around and it's, it's not specifically energy, but, you know, leaky faucets in government buildings drive. Mm -hmm. 
through the roof. So, you know, you can, you can apply the same logic to all the ways we're wasting energy. And, uh, so Paul, does Klatskin PUD, have you checked all the faucets? <laughs> I do. I check the faucets every day, at least once a day. Um, most of the times, like three or four times a day, uh, they always <laughs> shut off completely. And some of them don't even work. What do you know? And thinking through this, you know, I, I wonder, so as I think about it, emissions are an energy game, like it's energy volume. It's, it's all about your volume of emissions, which is an energy component. Yeah. So the, um, the rap just released their, uh, their draft tariff, you know, we, ago a week or two ago you which you can go read about at uh clearing up my story on that just plug that um, and, yeah uh, uh now paul you guys klatsk and i is a dues paying member or prospective member of rap right you guys didn't we are a dues paying member yeah, of the interim program opposed to most utilities your size uh which are uh, signing up under the umbrella of like TEA or Bonneville, I forget which one. I feel but... like you're going to have a gotcha question for me. No, That's no, correct. I just, I, you know, I think here it's... comes the Dan Catchpole, uh, Pulitzer nominated reporter gotcha question. He's going to put me on the spot. Let's see. Where are you going with this, Dan? No, I wasn't going anywhere with that part, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I I'll say to listeners, uh, the, the issue that Jason raised initially, I think you guys talked about that, if I recall correctly on the episode of public power underground that had Ben Surrier on it, but the issue of going in on, um, storage, which if I'm remembering that, even if I'm not, that was a fascinating episode worth going back and having, and giving it a listen, uh, Ben Surrey is outstanding and uh, Rocky Mountain Institute does great work. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, yeah, the RAP tariff does not address energy. It's strictly capacity okay. issues that, uh, you know, any, that the requirements and any penalties uh, for being deficient are attached to. And, um, and so, I, yeah, I wonder if there are any industries that have the, requirement to they deliver some service that has to deliver just like uh electric and natural gas utilities do they you know have to meet that reliability that have grappled with this issue of long-term planning long-term capital expenses and trying to figure out uh it, the the curve for technological progression uh, i'm wondering if there are other any industries out there that can the electric power uh, industry can maybe gain some lessons from. Um, I have no idea. That's. I was uh, hoping you're going to be like, and the airline industry is just one such thing. I thought you were going to like I, no, really loop they, it back. I will say there, there's uh, not quite the same dynamic, but they're grappling with, uh, you know, how do you, uh, emissions cut, having to cut emissions, the airline industry pound for pound, like, in terms of its size, it, it uh, its contributions to global or greenhouse gases is you know, a lot larger. Uh, it's outsized for the number of planes that are flying because they put out a lot of emissions and they're trying to figure out, okay, what's the curve for emission requirements and you know, investing in an airplane that's going to fly for 20 years, but you've got some electric aviation coming on, but that's, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, I will give a short plug. You talked about our, uh, Ben and RMI. They, he had a great paper on uh, these financing mechanisms that deal with this problem of like stranded costs. Um, and I will give a plug for that. We'll put a link in the show notes. Why not? It's free to put a link in the show notes. And uh, are we ready for the next one? Our last mailbag question. Give me, give me, uh, give me the Kool Aid thing, uh, Dan. Oh yeah. Okay. I feel like I'm going to get a one. cease and desist letter in the mail. No, because this is your interpretation. I'm pretty sure you. I'm pretty sure we're fine. They were fine. Don't <laughs> ask anybody. It's fair use. Fair use. He hasn't. Um, Kool Aid guy hasn't been canceled yet for like destruction of property, intimidation, anything like that. It's kind of violent. I don't know. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> we'll, we'll probably figure it out. Dan will uh, see it in his replies on Twitter. There's a great Family Guy clip of that where okay. just I'll say that. Go look up Family Guy and Kool-Aid guy or whatever. <laughs> Robert's going to love this. Intro can we this put question. a clip? Can we put a, uh, a link to that in the show notes? I'll find you know the what? clip and send it to you. Yeah, so if you find the clip and send it to Sarah <laughs> and I, we'll put it in the show notes because putting stuff in the show notes is free. Robert Cromwell, the vice president of power supply for Human Hill Electric Cooperative, located in Boardman, Oregon, FaceTimed us his submission. Cue the clip. Robert. Oh. We're doing a mailbag. You're doing a mailbag. You are a special celebrity guest host. Do you have a mailbag question for Public Power Underground for our season finale? Sure. I've got a few of them for you to think about. Good Lord, a few of them. A few Robert Cromwell questions. This is going to be great. I'm here for it. A couple of, couple of brain teasers to get the, the conversation going. So, you know, Paul, I, I've spent the better part of the last two decades trying to advance markets for the Northwest, buy into the Northwest. And, and I cut my teeth, actually, on setting up Columbia Grid to do transmission planning and trying to improve collaboration among public power and IOUs. But 17 years later, it doesn't feel like we've much farther along than we were 17 years ago. What are we doing wrong? Oh, I like it. What are we doing wrong? And we aren't just blaming Columbia Grid. It's more than them, right? Like it's just something Absolutely. else structurally. It's not them. We don't want to blame it, anybody. There's something structurally. No, no. Is there something it, structurally different? Yeah, it, it's Columbia Grid. It's now Northern Grid. It, it, it's not that we don't have the organizations and the people doing the work that we ask them to do. But are we asking them the right question? Are I we like giving it. them the right? I like it. I like it. What else you got? You said multiple. I'll pick the yeah, best well, one, Robert. We'll pick the best with, one. With, you got me started with your text message. So let me ask you a really provocative one. Does a market matter at all if you don't have enough transmission to deliver energy reliably? I like it. That's a good one. That's a good prompt, Robert. Okay. All right. Here's here's another uh, here's another softball for you. Softball. Uh, all easy questions. Always, always easy. It, is the best argument for an RTO not a qualitative or quantitative cost-benefit analysis, but that it will accelerate transmission development in a coordinated fashion? Three great questions, Robert. I knew you'd come through for me. I'm really hoping that this FaceTime actually recorded. I'm actually fairly confident that it did, which would be a wonderful success for all of us. All right, I got one last hot one across the plate for you. Well, you I thought you were only going to have three. You're going with four. Okay, last hot one across the plate. Toss it. I'm ready for it. I got a bat somewhere. <laughs> Does anyone think we can build transmission we need on the timeline we need it without federal siting authority? Okay, Robert. Umatilla Electric Cooperative, notoriously, you're building transmission. You're building big transmission. 
You feel good about that? I do. One of the reasons I joined uh, Umatilla is because they've been growing uh, quite a lot, quite quickly, and uh, they're essentially putting in a 230KV grid across the two counties we serve to meet those needs. And it's an exciting place to be. It's got interesting problems to solve, and I'm having a lot of fun. Great. Great to hear it. Thank you for bringing great questions. Let's see if anyone get in there. And I really appreciate all of your support and being friend of the underground. Thanks, Robert. All right. Take care, Paul. Yep. Okay, team. Robert got a little ambitious asking four questions. We are running out of time. So we're all going to take one question. We're going to go through and whoever, uh, whatever, I'm going to go last. So I'll get whatever question is left over. I'm going to start with you, Abigail. Pick your question. Give us your take. Oh, uh, number two. Number two, I, I would say, does the market matter at all if you don't have transmission? Um, I, I think it's a matter of, you know, if you build it, if you build the market, perhaps somebody else will build the transmission. Um, you know, you need to know that there is a market there. So I do think it matters. Uh, but, you know, transmission, you know, to your point, Robert, I, I hear you. <laughs> transmission is the million dollar question, billion dollar question. Let's be real. <laughs> So. A lot of a lot of transmission questions here. Uh, am I supposed to go? I'm going to go to Dan next. Dan, which one? These are a lot of transmission questions here. Which transmission question do you want to cover, Dan? Yeah, this is the Robert Cromwell transmission question draft. As he uh, mentioned so, in the video, uh, Umatilla Electric Cooperative is, is building transmission, so it's on his mind. He thinks this is, yeah. So I, I would have picked number two as well, but uh, Abigail took that. Um, so I'll, I'll do number three. Uh, is the best argument for an RTO not a qualitative or quantitative cost-benefit analysis, but that it will accelerate transmission development in a coordinated fashion? I think transmission development absolutely has to be a bigger part of the consideration. That said, I don't think you're going to... I think it's tough to say that it's like one or the other. It's got to be some balance of that cost-benefit analysis plus transmission development, but it absolutely has to be a bigger part of the consideration. Jason, you're up next. Which question do you want to take? I think I'll take number one, uh, which essentially 17 years later, doesn't feel like we've come much way. What are we doing wrong? Um, you know, I've seen a lot of things come and go. Uh, FERC Order 1000 didn't lead to a new interregional transmission or much new transmission. It really led, led to local projects, some of that having to do with the right of first refusal. Um, my main point on this is, you know, it's when you meet the, the local opposition is, is when these things happen. I don't know if people remember, uh, probably 10, 12 years ago, they had these national interest transmission corridors. There was another federal uh, process where they came up with these corridors where we need renewables and they started holding public hearings and local people showed up and just drummed them out of town, never went anywhere. Um, so I don't know what more can be done. Um, you know, more states, more coordination, but what the rubber really meets the road when you get to put the steel in the ground. And the fact of the matter is people just don't like transmission lines especially where I live in wildfire country, uh, you know, how are you going to come in and, and um, propose a new line there? So I don't know 
on the policy front, what will change, but the new FERC NOPER is a massive effort, a lot of discussion going on. I was just at the Federal State Task Force San Diego at Nehruk, and uh, it's definitely on interregional transmission, definitely on the mind of states and how to get more. So yeah, it's kind of my thoughts on that. Maybe we should uh, bid it out and say, you know, how much would, could we pay you to accept this transmission in your backyard? It could make for some pretty interesting routing, but you know, yeah. it's market driven. So there you are. Gotta love that, right? Sure. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I'm from the East Coast, it's especially different in Appalachia um, or, you know, these mountain environments that people are really interested in preserving. And it's not 20 years ago, 30 years ago when it was a lot easier. So uh, we'll see what happens. Isn't yeah, everything different in Appalachia? Is what? I said, isn't everything different in Appalachia? A little bit, yeah. For better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, banjos instead of ukuleles like we have hey, here. I love bluegrass, so <laughs> God bless So do I. <laughs> Transmission development is one of those uh, like uniquely difficult things because any participant in the transmission line is incentivized to be the last participant in the transmission line because then you have um, market power because if you are the last participant and the entirety of this line uh, depends on your participation uh you can you can exert market power and uh and the whole value proposition of the transmission line uh, you can hold hostage which is why we have things like you know the uh imminent domain because otherwise right. it, uh, it makes it really hard but to your point jason nobody likes transmission nobody really wants to participate and mm -hmm. uh it's 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 a hard one and th that leads to the last question which is um does anyone think you, we can build transmission that we need to build on the timeline we need it without federal signing authority and uh robert is getting exactly to this point nobody wants it i'm not sure federal signing authority is going to end up helping that much uh jason you probably have you've provided that take uh on this podcast you just did um, and I would say the one entities that help the most are probably RTOs. I mentioned MISO North and their long range transmission planning um, and that just got approved. Those regional transmission organizations are probably the best proxies of organizations that have figured out how to how to do it effectively um, and, and provide the incentives to actually get transmission development done. Really? Any follow up on that? It, one thought I have is, you know, a transmission line, unlike an interstate highway, doesn't benefit the areas it goes through, right? It's just an eyesore for them, um, unless you have some type of, you know, uh, arterial development. But in general, um, you know, they don't, they don't economically help the areas they run through. So it's something that makes it a little bit more of an obstacle, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, we've talked about a lot talked about transmission from a lot of different angles one thing that we haven't mentioned but just absolutely has to happen is uh, streamlining permitting and just the development process we to whatever degree we can yeah not, not federal siting but uh, federal streamlining is certainly in order to yeah there's i uh interviewed michelle minari about that uh, assistant doe secretary uh, on loan from Bonneville Power Administration. And that's one of the things they're looking into is how to streamline the permitting and land use issues through when you've got to build transmission in the West and going through multiple 
different federal agencies. How do you condense that down into one one-stop shop? Yeah. Okay, I think we covered all the elements of transmission development. I think Robert will probably okay. take issue with all of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he'll have notes for us. And you know what, Robert, you can come back. We can talk about it in season five about all the ways we are wrong and the ways that uh, we can do better in the future. But we're going to take a quick break and then go to our intermission game with Energy Industry Bluey Scholars. And then we're going to close it out with a round of mailbag questions. First, Abigail, can you read the promo? Yeah, Northwest Public Power Association believes in public power. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associates in the greater Pacific Northwest by offering education, training, communications, governmental relations, and services like RFP and job postings. In addition to public power, what else is important to Northwest Public Power Association? Local control, member needs, integrity, and quality products and services. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Learn more or register for a class at nwppa.org. That is nwppa.org. Believe in public power. And now an intermission game. It wouldn't be a season four finale without its own intermission game. In a special twist, I've assembled a cast specifically for the game we're playing. This is a cast of Bluey Scholars. For those unfamiliar, Bluey is an Australian animated television series commissioned by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the British Broadcasting Corporation. The show follows Bluey, an anthropomorphic six-year-old blue healer puppy. Bluey lives with her father, bandit, mother, Chili and younger sister, Bingo. I was gonna actually bring the stuffed animals that, uh, that my kids have, uh, Bluey and Bingo, but I, I I forgot, I feel like uh, failed a little bit on that task. Uh, the Bluey scholars assembled for this intermission game include and are the Honorable Katie Mapes, an administrative law judge for the Oregon PUC, and the instigator of this game after proposing it on hashtag energy Twitter. Hello, Judge Mapes. Nice to be here. I listen to your podcast. It's exciting to be on. I, I, I rarely believe people when they politely say that they do listen to the podcast, but uh, I'll accept it because you, you do interact with me on Energy Twitter every once in a while. I'm a big fan. <laughs> big fan. Uh, other, we also have a, an underground special correspondent. Anadromous champion. It's not a former anadromous champion because once you're an anadromous champion, you're always an anadromous champion because you kept coming back. Uh, the new NRU's newest general counsel notice. and director of operation, Matthew Shretnick. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, also joining Judge Mapes, Matt and I, is an energy dad, uh, a true bluey apostle, and the acting power planning supervisor and power trader for Eugene Modern Electric Board, John Hart. John. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. We just need to make the connection. You are the acting power planning supervisor because the former power planning supervisor for Eugene Water and Electric Board abandoned EWEB to become NRU's <laughs> general counsel. That's uh, that's that's correct, right, John? It's a little early to go off script, isn't it? Never too early to go off script. <laughs> I believe that's correct. So we'll settle the score on. Okay. 
Well, having assembled this cast of characters, I am actually going to hand it over to you, Judge Mapes, uh, to set the rules and run the game. I'm I'm so honored to have the honorable Katie Mapes. Sure. So I um I tell all my friends that I'm a fake judge. So I'm excited to get a chance to be an especially fake judge today. <laughs> Opportunity. Um, a word of warning: my law clerk is currently very focused on the lion guard. Oh. So if I the way I get a lot of rar rar. So I haven't had as much prep time as I would like, but I think we've watched the whole series twice. So I've had a significant amount of prep time <laughs> at various points. Okay, so the game today is that we're going to see who can come up with the best uh, correspondences between Bluey characters uh, or families, because each family is um, usually a different breed of dog, which raises um, world-building issues we probably don't want to inquire too deeply into, (laughs) Um, and energy sector players like Spurk or Nurk or DOE. Or, or more niche actors, I think the examples we were given are Class Kenny, PUD, and E-Web. And, you know, um, all of those are great. Um, so I, I'm excited to see a variety. I have a couple in mind that are right, but I, I will not <laughs> delay. Um, so we, we have some judging criteria, and I don't think we'll give a numerical score, but we will. I will consider how it fits into the, uh, the categories. Okay. And the first is story arc. So... How does the comparison fit within the narrative arc of the series? Um, are you comparing it to a single single scene, or is it an overall story that runs through different episodes? Um, we've seen two seasons here in America, not the third in Australia. But um, PSA, PSA, the third season is coming out August 10th. This is a very I'm, important I'm, public service announcement. I don't think I was this excited for a children's show when I was a child. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> was that what you want? So the second is relational coherence. Uh, yeah, so we'll see if we can finish the Lion Guard, and I'll get to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> so does the relationship between the energy actors match the relationship between the Bluey characters? You know, we have sisters, Bluey and Bingo, um, classmates, like Bingo's um, friends. Um, we have the parent-child relationship, which might be tricky, but we'll see if people can work with that. Okay. Um, and the third is, is cleverness. Um, you know, we don't, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I was told the Bluey and Bingo can obviously be E-Web and Class to me, but we, we want to learn more. We want to go further, learn about ourselves and the Bluey characters. And the fourth is vibe. We just need to kind of feel it. It needs to feel right. So, so with that, um, you know, I, I welcome any preliminary comments on the judging criteria. Uh, I love them. I I am a big fan of Shea Serrano. I don't try to hide that. Um, I try to make sure people understand. And his references to the disrespectful dunk contest inspired the criteria. Um, so if anyone ever wants to go uh, read about disrespectful dunks in the NBA, then uh, I think you should check it out. So I don't do sports, but I do, do read the Ringer pop culture coverage, which sometimes adopts a similar approach, which I appreciate. Okay, I just got to <laughs> ask. Uh, Grantland? Were you a Grantland follower back when? I it- did read Grantland, yeah, back in the day. Yes, I, I knew you and I got along really well for some reason. Yeah, like- Same pop culture <laughs> references here. Same pop culture references. Yeah, I'm like Chris and Andy's podcast. I always enjoy. Okay, good. So, uh, okay, so with that, let's 
let's start over. John, we can start with you. Okay, so here we go. Uh, so Bluey is uh, a show that is ostensibly for adults that my children will sit through. As a father of two precocious girls who are now six and nine years old, I cannot watch this show without having a keen awareness of the interplay between the two central characters, Bandit and Chili Keeler. Comparison one, Chili Keeler is the mother of the Keeler family and is clearly coded to represent a Western RTO. She is the structural framework under which the Keeler family thrives. She creates order where there is chaos and she is oddly missing from most of the first season. Two pieces of evidence. <laughs> In the episode, Sticky Gecko, Chili is trying to get her family out of the door on time, but the children are completely distracted and chaos ensues. Chili professionally manages the issue, all issues, uh, including saving the titular Sticky Gecko from falling to the ground and getting dirty. The Sticky Gecko, of course, being the Western Power Grid. Evidence number two, in the episode The Pool, Bandit Healer, the father of the family, takes the kids to the pool. He is underprepared, and he literally brings nothing that the kids need. At the very end of the episode, Chili shows up with all the gear and saves the day. The pool vacuum, the scary pool vacuum in the episode represents Bitcoin miners. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I, need to, I need to understand this a little bit better, though, John. So you're saying Chili is the, a Western R RTO that just hasn't shown up yet. And Bandit okay. is like our current, like, uh, disorganized bilateral market? Bandit is comparison number two. We'll get to it. Okay. Okay. Oh. Okay. Okay. But yeah, okay. I'm, what do you think, Judge Mapes? What do you think of the first well, submission? Well, I think that's hard to beat. I hadn't realized Louie was like speculative fiction. Um, <laughs> now that we're going in that direction, uh, that's how I'll be watching it. So. I mean, I, I I respect Chili a lot. I, I think I think she does bring a lot of order to the chaos. So. Okay, I think that's going to be tough to beat, John. That was uh, yeah, the the speculative fiction angle. That that um, I I hadn't considered taking that tack. I'm uh, I'm both intimidated and uh, you know I'm a little envious. I'll admit it. That's hey. all I have for number one. Okay, Matt. let's go on to uh, who's next, Matt. I guess. Um, so I, I was going to start with uh, with Bluey's cousin, uh, Muffin Cupcake Healer. Mm -hmm. um, now, specifically, I wanted to speak to Muffin as she appears in the episode Muffin Cup. Uh, and Muffin's analog in this instance is none other, none other than our own uh, Paul Dockery. Ooh. <laughs> uh, now, why? Um, now, while in Muffin Cone, Muffin won't stop sucking her thumb, and so she has to wear a cone of shame. Now, here... Uh, Muffin's refusal to stop sucking her thumb is akin to Paul's refusal to accept that free EV charging, no. uh, like that which EWEB, no. uh, Snohomish, and Seattle City Light offer at their respective headquarters buildings is a good and right thing and should be enthusiastically encouraged. Nope. Now, we all understand the impact that unmanaged demand can have on a distribution system, just like we all recognize the joy of not doing what we're told sometimes. But we also recognize that sometimes growth requires doing things that we don't like. Uh, because that's the key. We're still growing. We're working together to help drive EV, EV adoption and electrify no. the transportation system. No. So we take Paul's cone of shame. No. And like Bluey and Bingo, we accept it. We make it into something to be celebrated, like a beautiful sunset. No, Matt, you don't um, have to defend so, this anymore. You don't work at eWeb anymore. You don't have to defend this anymore. But it's still <laughs> the right thing. So no. I submit to the court that Muffin Cupcake Healer is Paul Dockery and that free EV adoption charges 
uh, free EV charging, excuse me, especially for EV fast charging is Paul's going to change. Nope. No, you know what? If free EV charging is like muffins, uh, mother sits there and just eats the whole thing of, of, uh, cookies because she wants to, that's what free EV charging is. <laughs> I, object. I have a response council. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want you to speak out of term, but I'll permit, I'll permit a <laughs> short response. <laughs> I, uh, nope, nope. I I feel attacked. Okay, I, am I up next? Am I up next? I did not. I'm not. Okay, so I um I was prepared to lose in a landslide. Um, I did not. I was not prepared to be attacked so viciously. Okay, so uh, my my submission, uh, honorable judge Bapes, is that housing policy is energy policy. So I'm going with season two, episode six, titled Stumpfest, where Bluey goes from NIMBY to YIMBY with the excellent parenting of her mother, Chili. One of the hardest responsibilities of parenting a toddler is getting them from a no to a yes. And the hardest job in the energy industry is getting a NIMBY to a YIMBY. So I submit the NIMBY to YIMBY conversion of Bluey as my analog. I think the counter argument here is that those dogs have a really big, nice, bougie house, and I, I do not understand how they afford it. It is my one complaint. <laughs> I, I do not know what either parent does. Not to not to break. I don't know. Would that be the fifth wall, or the fourth wall here? But you know, I mean, it's better than friends, right? <laughs> that is true. Especially since they're dogs. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, they're also dogs. I think that. <laughs> so. But but I do see a theme here, which is that Chili is emerging as our hero, um, and and I think you know with that, uh, I, you know I, I really I, I found the cleverness with all three submissions. I found the relational coherence. Uh, sorry, Paul, <laughs> but but they all work for me. No, um, Matt's is I don't know. Disqualified. You know, I think the overarching the overarching thing, we're all going that Chili is the hero here, but the idea that she's a Western RTO bringing order to chaos, I, I think the first round goes to John. That said, it sounds like the second round will build on the first. So in that in that way, it has to be anybody's game. Excellent. I'm going to stop then for comparison number two. <laughs> Talk about Chili. We're going to band. I think Chili essentially works for by the way. You can look it up. Uh, comparison number two, Bandit Healer is the father of the Healer house and is the heart and soul of public power. He is dedicated to his children, his customers, and wants them to be successful. He engages in respectful and fun interactions with them. And at the end of each episode, it is very clear who he's working for. Two pieces of evidence. In the episode, aforementioned episode, Stump Fest, Bandit Stripe and Lucky's dad decide to spend the day ripping stumps out of the ground. They announce their plans well in advance to their kids, i.e. their customers, to which the kids agree. When it comes time to rip out the last one, however, the kids decry the stumps removal is an act of civil disobedience. The stumps are a metaphor for switching um, out analog customer meters with digital ones, because sometimes public power is hard. Evidence number two. In the episode Wagon Ride, Bandit takes his kids on an early morning ride to the monkey bar, and Blue struggles with how long it takes. The episode detects healthy ways for parents 
and children communicate with pursuing a shared goal and bandits' dedication to problems solving with his kids. The monkey bars are a metaphor for urbanizing the energy grid. And as Bandit puts it, got to be done. So Bandit is public power specifically. No, that not is a journey. These are Maybe maybe all the all are. Maybe they're all different public utilities, but they're definitely working in the public. Oh, I like it. Yeah, this is really good. I am um, uh, prior to becoming a fake judge. I was I represented municipal utilities at FERC, and um, I, I used to go to like the NCPA and CMUA conferences mm-hmm. in um, California. I would say they throw a good party, and I think Bandit would enjoy that. Okay. I think that's true. <laughs> uh, it, it, I learned Bandit was an archaeologist. Rather than, oh, well, that's pretty cool. That's really that's cool. Actually, uh, Bandit's an archaeologist, and Chili, is, uh, she works in customs at the airport because dogs, you got a sniffer dog, and the other one digs up bones. <laughs> right? Can't argue with that. <laughs> Um, I like it. I like the public power. I uh, so for my my second, um, I am not attacking anybody directly with this. Just to be clear, uh, nor was I in the form of just pointing out a cognitive dissonance. That said, um, uh, for my second analogy here, uh, Lucky's dad, um, whose name turns out is Pat, um, and in referencing Pat, I'm thinking of two episodes in particular: the first being Rug Island, uh, and the second being uh, Asparagus. Uh, which is one of my favorites. Now, in both, Pat is willing to immediately jump into and play along with whatever imaginary world the kids and the parents uh, happen to be in at the time. Uh, one of the best things about the show is the character's ability to do that. Uh, in Rug Island, Pat has sold a bunch of felt markers uh, in his snake, uh, and he fights them off heroically. Uh, and Asparagus, when he is ambushed by Chili and Bandit after Bluey turned him into lions, his only comment is that he shouldn't have let his guard down. Now, here, Pat is the Bonneville Power Administration. All right, so when we see Pat, uh, it's because he's finding himself subject to the antics and whims of his neighbors. Uh, Bonneville is generally reactionary uh, by nature, and those of us in the DPA balancing authority often find ourselves subject to the antics of our neighbors. Regionally, for, for many reasons, Bonneville is simply unable to be on the forefront of issues or to get out ahead of its customers. But I'm of the opinion that the agency has really improved the way in which it will play along. Uh, when one of its neighbors finds a magic stick of asparagus, whether it's the EIM implementation, the Western Resource Adequacy Initiative, today had market expansion, um, recent conversations with post-28, et cetera. And so when customers tell Bonneville that the size of the Tier 1 system is insufficient, but that we need to maintain tiered rates, they're willing to grab onto our felt hands and pretend that it's a snake. Um, and when customers inevitably comment on any proposed rate increases that may result as a I will absolutely do in the future. We'll probably just hear them say that they shouldn't have let their guard down. There's the neighbor. He's there. <laughs> He's <laughs> drawn in. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, I. Uh, you shouldn't let your guard down. I like that. That's good. That's good. When the neighbors attack you and start biting your legs. I, yeah. That happens. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, my my final submission, not nearly. This is, I think I just I just phoned it in. Literally, I'm FaceTiming it in. Okay, so I went with like, okay, Calypso, the teacher at Bluey's school. This is a very loose one. It's not as well argued. Uh, yeah, not argued well at all. Okay, but Calypso, the teacher. I'm going with 
Calypso's she's FERC. So she's trying to get all these energy actors to play along and play nice together. You got to manage a whole bunch of different personalities. You got to be the moderator. Uh, and she's really good at like trying to like get these people to do what she wants. She's very skilled. Um, but she's like got this broad responsibility to manage all these personalities within the energy space. So I went with Calypso as FERC as my final submission. You know, I will say I appreciate that first because I'm obsessed with that school and I want to personally go to it. Um, I feel like I'm going to learn a lot. Yeah. But um, second, you know, that when I was first thinking about this, the two that came to mind for me were, um, I think Bluey, like to me, Bluey really kind of encapsulates NERC. I mean, she is very rules oriented. She is very oh. focused. She has a lot of details that she keeps straight and that she expects other to keep people to keep straight. And I thought, but who, who's Ferk kind of in theory overseeing Bluey? And, and, you know, Bandit and Chili did not seem right to me. But Calypso, I think that could work. And I, I think I think of Bingo as more of like, Bingo's more like maybe the National Labs. She's experimenting with broader ideas. She's bringing things, creative concepts in. And she doesn't go to that school. She has a different supervisory framework. Yes. So. So I like it. And, and you know what? I'll just submit, Judge Mapes, that mine fits well within your correct takes. And I think maybe <laughs> you should take that into account as you decide the winner of this exercise. Possibly. I know. So we have to have an overall winner here, which I think is very difficult. Um, and I, I, I noticed that we just had a place in the script where everyone involves in the chaos. And I think that's probably fair. Well, I, um, I think we've accomplished some of that. I, I, I mean, I do think I'm going to give it to you, Paul. For the, um, on the, no, 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 no. Let me finish the second round. I will give the second round to you. Okay. But I still think that overall, John edges you out. I think it is hard to beat um, Chili as a Western RTO. I think that's the winner of the day. So, But we um, won't know. Just, but, uh, judge, uh, just uh, to submit, to submit into testimony here. I don't know the right words. I'm not a lawyer, but I will say we won't really know until the third season and we won't really know until a Western RTO forms. So maybe in the interim, I could be the interim champion until we resolve this when an RTO forms. All, all as much as I enjoy watching an attorney tell a judge they don't have jurisdiction over something. Um, I, 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 I think we that public power in a Western RTO could make for a really healthy narrative. <laughs> Your narrative arc there, it's great. It's absolutely great, John. That's a I'm fascinating like... narrative arc. <laughs> we had some volunteers from both institutions, and we can talk about that. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, it is so it's July 20th. We have until August 10th. You know, I, I just think we need something to look forward to. We need some inspiration in our lives. So that, that can be our inspiration going forward. Okay. Inspirational okay. Well, I appreciate you being willing to stand in judgment over uh, us energy dads uh, and our <laughs> takes on Bluey. Um, I think maybe at some point we should talk about the characters from Girls 5 Ever as uh, RTOs and, uh, and U.S. markets. Uh, because I do yeah, think Ashley I, is the I right take my... for ERCOT because she loves living on the edge and, and dies falling <laughs> over the edge of an infinity pool. We should, I think that's the right take. We should definitely I, I think that's probably right, the level of chaos involved. 
But I will also say I think we're the only two people who have watched that show in the entire country. Yeah, my so wife watched it with me. My wife up. loves it. And we, we forwarded it on to uh, some of her friends. They absolutely loved it, too. The soundtrack, <laughs> we'll just say, it's got some great soundtrack that you should not listen with your children. You should not listen yeah. with your children. Right, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, I can. Um, yes, you should not. Because um, my, my son was asking some very uncomfortable questions. as a result. <laughs> Uh, no, this is a big advantage of it not being on network television <laughs> that they could go all out on the lyrics, unlike uh, like Thirty Rock, which has some great songs. But okay, well, maybe for the next installment, we'll just say if you are an adult who endo- enjoys adult humor and you uh, have a period in time where you don't have children around, Girls Five Eva is a uh, great. It's quite entertaining. Um, Judge Mapes, are you willing to come back at some point and do another intermission game? I think you've got a great skill for this. Really, anytime. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Matt, John, I really appreciated you uh, doing this. Do you feel valued and appreciated? Oh, yeah. Thanks, well, Okay. It was a lot of fun. That's it for the intermission game. Now back to the crew to close out the season finale. Thanks to Katie, Matt, and John for the outstanding intermission game. Next up, we're doing a mailbag a version of our TLDR segment. We aren't going to cover all the questions uh, in depth um, because we had too many submissions, but they were great, so we wanted to get them covered. Um, So instead, we're going to do it like our TLDR segment, and Dan and I are going to read the questions in what we're going to call the segment Just a Text. Dan, you ready to introduce the segment with me? Let's do it. Okay. You got to at least give me like a cue. Jason, give us a cue. No, I just mean like for you, Um, Paul, be like, all right, three, two. Okay. Unless you intentionally just always want it off. I can't tell. Just this a, is just a text. No? Uh, this is just a text. a text. Yes, we did it, Dan. It was great. It was perfect. No notes. Uh, you're up first. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Mike Bloomberg from Groundwork Data asks, I want to know which munis are ready to push the envelope on gas decommissioning. Munis are about 10% more reliable and 10% cheaper than IOUs with room for further widening. They can do the same with admission with emissions. Bryce Johannick of Quanta Technology, formerly from Cass County Electric Cooperative in Fargo, North Dakota notes and asks, quote, between outage and energy transition liability, transmission and distribution grid investment needs are significant. A transmission needs to install PMU-capable relays at every node. Distribution needs to develop and deploy relays and smart readers that reconcile their electronic relationship with one another via purpose-built comm layer. This question is, quote, what have you heard electric utilities doing to prepare for the transmission and distribution work ahead? Is anyone doing it really well? Therese Hampton, season four celebrity guest host and former public power executive has the following conundrum. Quote, the volatile and unpredictable weather effects of climate change are impacting reliability for utilities today. However, the grid infrastructure and new technologies needed to reach the near zero greenhouse gas grid and manage this volatility are decades away. What power supply demand management actions would you take to confidently manage the interests of customers for the next decade? What single regulatory ask would you make to facilitate or accelerate the solutions needed and submission? Bill Drummond, another season four celebrity guest host, former public power executive and 
current Western Power Pool board chair, poses the following question. The variability around load forecasts has increased tremendously as a consequence of climate change. We are also adding more variable energy resources at the same time we are shuttering traditional baseload units, including the potential removal of the four Lower Snake River hydropower projects. Capacity resources are increasingly difficult to construct and cost-effective utility-scale battery technology has been, air quotes, just around the corner for years. Combined with the challenges associated with constructing new transmission lines, all these factors point to an increasingly less reliable grid. Bill continues, I'm reading the same question as Dan. See, we're doing this again. It's very helpful. <laughs> I like it. Short of a series of outages, how do we as an industry convince the public, regulators, and legislators that, a planning, that planning a power system based on optimistic forecasts of technological advancements, especially involving storage and fairy dust without potentially significant outages is highly unlikely? And submission, we got some fairy dust commentary in our mailbag questions in our just a text. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the prudent spending argument for fairy dust. <laughs> I want to see that? We don't know fairies aren't real. Okay, just to be no, clear, we true. don't know. You can't prove a negative. There may be they may be based on something. You're up next, Dan. Simon Mahan, Energy Twitter curator and executive director of the Southern Renewable Energy Association, notes: I don't know. I always feel like we need to be talking about squirrels and the risk to distribution systems a lot more in submission. It, Simon, thank you for bringing up squirrels. Yeah, APPA does a whole newsletter on the, around their April Fool's uh, April Fool's Day just around squirrels. It's great. It is great uh, content from APPA. They know they know the score with the, with the squirrels. To close it all out, Mary Winky adds- have a squirrel on as a celebrity guest host. Oh, that would be- <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, just- we do that? This is great. See, it's this is be... the collaboration we get on Public Power. This is the value we're all bringing. Thank you, Abigail, for bringing no one's, that no one's got idea. This, no one's got the squirrel perspective. But you know, they're hard yeah. to pin down. Gotta we're just libeling public. squirrels right now. Well, that's why I want to give the squirrels a platform. Yeah. That's why they need a platform. Maybe they have like a spokes, a spokes squirrel that can. That's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> I bet I could book a spoke squirrel. I bet I can. I bet I can book what? one. Never what? doubt the ability of public power under to book a guest. <laughs> We're going to close it out with Mary Yankee, Wenke, who adds a lightning round quote, uh, contribution quote. Your work on public power underground is truly special. This is a real quote. This is me inserting into this and something that I'm adding as commentary, but this is a real quote. I really think that it is an amazing contribution to the community and the com combination of your knowledge and enthusiasm is really to use your word infotaining and fun. I just want to add, I did not write this for Mary. She submitted this on her own, just adding, this was an insert, but this, the rest of this is a real quote. Quote, uh, continuing the quote, quote, I really enjoy it. Still a real quote. I did not add that. Just, okay. That's it. Just wanted to say something nice about the underground. Smiley face emoji, end quote. Yes, that's a real quote. Thank you for the testimonial. I really appreciate it. Dan, we got to close out the segment. Are you ready? Right. I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. And that's, and that's just, just a text. text. Oh, yeah. Bam, we did it. Any Anything in there, team, that we wanted to cover and prep for season five? Any questions you found incredibly intriguing uh, that you have a take on? I just want to say, Mary Winky, once again, showing how insightful and just spot on she is with her analysis. Just, so I just, just nails the analysis. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I'm looking back here, uh, trying to remember who asked. Yeah, yeah, Bryce. Uh, That question about electric utilities uh, preparing for TND work ahead. You know, I that is a tough question. I I have to say, there's it doesn't seem like there's anybody who really stands out. And at this point, it's more just kind of conversation, like it's on their radar. But I'm not really sure who is really out ahead, if anybody. Uh, I mean, there are certainly utilities building transmission, um, and you know what a headache that is. Uh, like, look at Idaho Power and Pacific Core with Boardman to Hemingway. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to follow up on that. I'm really curious to see if there's anybody who's like really forward thinking about this. You know, Portland General Electric recently had a presentation at, at PNUC, uh, the Pacific Northwest Utilities Conference Committee. I think I got the, the views and the C's and the C's, right? Um, they did a presentation about one of their control centers that they developed in order to uh, manage like uh, edge case, like, uh, earthquake or the Cascadia induction zone thing. Um, and they talked through how they're like deploying some of these technologies and, and as he mentioned, smart meters, relays, um, all this type of interconnected data systems to better understand their distribution system and have it within a centrally hardened, resilient structure. Um, I think maybe they're a good example, but I'm not sure. Bryce is one of these uh, personalities on energy Twitter who has a really interesting and intriguing take take Jason do you follow him because I feel like you and he would get along really well actually Robert, Robert Bryce Bryce Johannic uh, I'm sorry um no but I'll, I'll look him up yeah don't you think Dan that they get along really well I think they're similar personalities quite honestly yeah uh absolutely I always yeah. appreciate the perspective Bryce brings yeah on the yeah. ground and, he he uh, is a trained line worker, uh, and and that is also a really good perspective. Coming talking about squirrels again, uh, yeah. about like a different perspective on utility and utility planning and utility systems. So uh, that's it. Uh, my only take is uh, this was great. We have lots to talk about in season five, and uh, you know I'm open to more testimonials. And you know what? We need five star reviews and comments, uh, so that when we come back. Right now we're like when you search for public power. I think we're back to the second. We were at we were the first thing that popped up there for like a couple weeks, and then APPA Public Power Now bumped us. So now we're I think we're second again. And I do not like being second. I really enjoy Public Power Now and APPA, but I think we should be first. And what it takes to be first is you all give us comments and five star reviews. So please do that for us. That's it. For the fourth season, we do plan on coming back for a fifth season in September, where we're leaning into the news data resources with two podcast ambassadors for news data for each episode. So you'll be hearing more from Abigail, Dan, and Jason next season. That's going to be exciting. Don't don't show your excitement too much, team. It'll be fine. You'll enjoy it. Uh, I assure you. Saving it uh, for the make, squirrels. Ready for the squirrels and the mylar balloons. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Make sure you don't miss the next season or bonus episodes. In the meantime, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And Jason, Dan, and Abigail, you know, you can also buy Public Power Underground merch. All you have to do is go on Shopify 
Search for Public Power Underground. We have nice different shirts. We have some uh, some quarter zips that are very professional. Um, not all of them say electric utility enthusiast. If you have like something about being a journalist of the industry and not being an enthusiast, it's okay. Some just say public power with the public power underground logo. Very nice, very tasteful. I'll just say, just go on, on Shopify. Okay. Can Do you, you feel can be enthusiasts about, we should be enthusiasts about the subject matter we write about. Doesn't mean we have okay. to have any like sides, but. Objectively enthusiastic. Yeah. Objectively enthusiastic. That's, I, you know what, I'll even make some merch for you and it'll be public power and merch that says objectively enthusiastic for our news data podcast ambassadors. Just wait for it. That is coming. Jason, do you feel valued and appreciated? I do, Paul. It's great to be here. Looking forward to next season. Great. I really appreciate you. Dan, do you like, do you feel good about this? I feel great. I always love this. Good. Abigail, do you Absolutely. feel good about this? Okay, good. Always fun to nerd out with fellow energy geeks. Yeah, that's what we are. We're the wonkiest and dorkiest of public power people. Not only public power, also electric utility coverage at news data. So uh, you don't have to be a news data weekly news. You don't have to be subscribed to news data's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery. It's edited and published by the Stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Budso. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. <laughs> <laughs>